Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen path. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with Galen Rosenwax, who's both an author and a leader, inspiring people with her writing, with her films, with her presentations, and with her great exploration. But first, we have a moment for our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Galen, a phenomenal book. I was so amazed to see it, to get it. It's almost all amazing photographs, but with some wonderful text, wonderful introduction by Carl Safina, I assume is a very good friend of yours. And then your introduction to your whole love for sperm whales. This book, Sperm Whales, The Gentle Goliaths of the Ocean, is really wonderful. And it's interesting in his introduction, Carl talks about them as leviathans. You talk about them as Goliaths. They certainly are animals that inspire um, magnificently large and, and awe-inspiring words. But um, your start with these amazing animals was very early in your life. And do you want to tell our listeners sort of your your evolution toward the sperm whales and reasons for your interest? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Um, and like you said, you know, really sperm whales are an animal of superlatives. We use words like Leviathan and Goliaths and everything they do is in a big way. So that alone is enough to captivate anybody's curiosity. But mine did start when I was a toddler and I saw this gentle Goliath in a boat basin nearby where I lived. And this whale, they nicknamed him Feisty, um, had stranded on the beaches of Long Island here in New York. And I was not even two years old, but my mother took us to see this young whale that they had then brought into captivity into a boat basin. He was struggling on shore. They brought him in thinking that they were going to do a necropsy, that he was going to die. He was about 23 feet, a young whale. And they brought him into captivity Word got around. Um, my father was a professor at Stony Brook at the time. And so there were some Stony Brook professors working on this young whale. So we heard about it. And what does one do with rambunctious um, toddlers? She takes them to see a sperm whale. So there we were standing next to this boat basin with this just enormous creature there. 
And at that point, he wasn't swimming around very much, but it made a huge impression on me. And over the next nine days, they kept this whale in captivity. They figured out what was wrong with him, and he actually had pneumonia. So instead of doing a necropsy, they actually diagnosed him. They got pounds and pounds of antibiotics flown in, and then someone actually hand-fed this young whale squid laced with these with penicillin, and they got him well. And then a few days later, he was feisty enough to be released, and they let him out of the boat basin and into the Atlantic Ocean. And there I was looking into the eye of this whale as he was there in captivity, and we went every day, and it just completely captivated me. And be, I became so incredibly curious about the ocean from that point on. And then, you know, flash forward a few decades and many expeditions and much studying and years and years later, I wanted to look back on those moments that stayed with us our entire lives. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble, you know, thinking that a toddler can remember that moment. But the reality is it made such an impression on my brother and me that whenever we went to the beach and the boat basin was on the way to the beach, we would talk about seeing Feisty. So Feisty had an ever-presence in our lives that we would just continue to talk about him. And we would remember those moments and looking into his eye and watching him swim around the boat basin, thinking to ourselves, how can something this huge and amazing live, you know, just beyond our shoreline? So it's really where the story began. Definitely. And I'm sure that you and your brother talking about that story whenever you go by there reinforced your memory of it. And yes. Not only was it incredible for you, what was your brother's thought about it? Has he stayed a, a whale watcher? Uh, you know, he loves the ocean. This, you know, not dissimilarly to me. However, he did not go into the marine science pathway. He's more in the arts, but he certainly remembers feisty fondly. And it was, you know, just one of those moments where, you know, you just talk about, you know, one of your favorite childhood memories. And Feisty was certainly one of my first memories and certainly one of both of our favorite memories. Certainly. And yet you became a fish biologist. And you've done, um, you've done film, for sure. You've done one about mm -hmm. Feisty now. But your first that I know of was on coral. So you've, you've kind of taken on a a larger realm of the marine environment, not even the ecology where whales are present. So you've gotten a broad background in the, in the ocean area. Yes, it's interesting because this is actually the first project on whales that I have done. So I took a very different path in my career, especially my academic career. But Feisty was really the catalyst for my curiosity about the ocean and then it sort of became a story that was in the back of my mind, something that sparked that curiosity. Then the more I learned about the ocean, reading books, absorbing any information I could growing up, and then starting to study, I certainly took a different path in my academic career and then also in many of my films, you know, starting my career working really in tropical ecology, then moving on to working in the Southern Ocean in Antarctica on zooplankton to then doing my graduate work on bluefin tuna, as you mentioned with fish, and I really became a fish biologist and fisheries and fishing has always been a huge part of my life. And then flash forward to becoming a filmmaker and storyteller and really focusing on that rather than academics and telling stories about corals and climate change and Bering Sea ecosystems and fish and fishing for science and all kinds of really fun, diverse stories. Um, and then really I had this moment, you know, 
I guess it was four years ago that I just started sort of Googling, what, what about feisty? I want to know more about feisty. Now that I know so much about the ocean and I've studied so many different things, really, what was that story? You know, because I had the memory of seeing the whale and it making an impression, but I really wanted to learn. And that's really when I learned that he was this baby young sperm whale and about the incredible story, um, more than just that feeling that he had given me when I was a toddler. And that's really what helped me embark on this incredible project to reconnect with sperm whales. And it's taken me in different directions. And to be honest, I thought I was going to make a 15-minute short film about Feisty and then my reconnection with the whales going down to Dominica and getting in the water with them. And it has turned into the most magical experience of my life, getting to spend time in the water with them, learning about them, learning about their life history and their family units. And it's just been absolutely amazing. So people who don't have your book in front of them, and I'm very sorry for anyone who doesn't have your book in front of them right now, because it is gorgeous. They, uh, It's mostly photographs. And as you say, you went down to Dominica and, and photographed these amazing animals. So how many times were you down in Dominica? How many times did you go out in the water and actually encounter the whales as opposed to just have a nice day out on the water? Yeah, so we did um, We did four expeditions um, to complete this book. Our first expedition was an exploratory expedition. It was five days as opposed to our normal 10-day expeditions, and it was a colossal failure. So in our first attempt at seeing the sperm whales, we saw two sperm whales. The one image that I made is actually in the book, in the essay portion of the book. And I knew from that moment I needed to continue the project but I also knew that it wasn't going to be as straightforward and simple as I had imagined it to be, knowing that Dominica has a resident population of sperm whales and having seen some images from down there. So we did four expeditions. All were very different. Um, two were pre-pandemic and two were during the pandemic. And it was extremely challenging to get down there during the pandemic, but also very rewarding because we were the only people down for most of those expeditions. But we spent you know, well over a month in the water with the whales, having good days and bad days, some days no whales, and then some days just absolutely epic encounters um, that really, you know, just change your perspective on everything in the ocean. Yeah. It, it's And were you out in the water the whole time or were you coming back to land every evening? So we came back to land every evening. So we would do day trips. The amazing thing about Dominica is it's an incredibly beautiful volcanic island. And it basically, the water, the depth of the water just drops off right off the coast. So you're in thousands of feet of water within sight distance of the island. So you're watching, you know, the rainstorms in the rainforest over the island. And then you're literally in thousands of feet of water below you as you're in the water with the whales. So they come quite close to shore. You're not, sometimes you can find them a mile from shore out to, I think we go about 12 miles at most, um, but it's all coastal. So what's nice is that you actually get to come back to land at night and sort of regroup and get ready for the next day. And, and download and recharge and get- drop off all your, your <laughs> photographs. And then, yeah, it is nice to do that. You can do it on the shipboard, but it's sometimes not as convenient or easy. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, this is really the first series of expeditions I've done that are land-based. Most of the time I'm spending months at sea or certainly weeks at sea for all of my projects. So it was very different 
this entire this entire project has been very different than most of my previous work, um, which I think is maybe what's made it so exciting. Um, and certainly not the first big animals that I've ever photographed, but certainly the biggest animals that I have photographed. So there are, as you mentioned to begin with, or as we both talked about to begin with, there are a lot of superlatives that go with sperm whales, perhaps not the largest whale, but still they've got incredible things that they do. And I've got like a list of a dozen, but I thought I would let you <laughs> you go through some of the ones that, that you found the most fascinating about these amazing creatures. Oh my goodness. There are so many fascinating things about these whales. First, they are the largest toothed predator on the planet. They eat one of the largest other animals on the planet, the giant squid, which is very exciting. They are the best free diver on the planet. Well, second to the Cuvier beaked whales, but they are, they can dive thousands of feet um, down and they stay underwater for 45 minutes to an hour. So they're Free diving capability as a fellow free diver is just incredible. I can hold my breath for maybe four minutes and that's, you know, I feel very accomplished by doing that. And they're literally down for close to an hour. They're mammals, so they need air to breathe, you know, just like all whales. And it's absolutely insane to think about. But when you're in the water next to them and they're getting ready to do their deep dive and they're going through their breathing patterns, just like I would free diving, it's pretty phenomenal to see. Um, they also have the largest sound that they make of anything on the planet. They have these great like sort of sonic booms that they make when they're hunting. Um, and I've heard stories of them doing that towards people. And then that's kind of jarring and alarming. That did not happen to us. We were clicked on and we were communicated with. It felt like well, more more about their 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 communication, their their sonar, their sonic booms, as you say, and then their clicking. Um, th they've got different types of clicks for different encounters. Has anyone started to talk sperm whale yet? <laughs> There's actually a project that's working on talking to the sperm whales down in Dominica. It's, project, it's called Project CETI, and it's absolutely incredible. They're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to communicate with the sperm whales. Um, I'm so fascinated to see where that project will go and what will happen with it. It's certainly something I've been following along, along with because it is just so interesting. But what you do, what they do know is that each clan and each family, because they live in these incredible family units, have distinctive codas that they identify themselves. So just like I'm, when we chat, I say, hi, I'm Galen. You say, hi, I'm Leslie. Um, they would most likely have something that's like that, or certainly saying something like I'm from, you know, Dominica or something to identify. So I'd be like, I'm Galen from New York. And they would have a series of codas that would identify them as saying, hi, I'm this animal from Dominica and you know, so if they see another sperm whale in the water, they could, they can identify by that and find each other as well. So one thing that's so interesting about Feisty and they have a, I have a series of recordings that someone made of Feisty in the boat basin and um, you can hear him clicking and doing codas and you're, I've always sort of been curious, well, is he looking for his family or is it just, you know, a response to figuring out what's going on in his environment um, because they also use sound to sort of read their world, right? Using sonar technology, you know, sonar, I'm going to say technology, but it's not technology really for them. It's because it's their, how they do things. Um, 
so yeah, so they but they had these complex languages that we're just learning about and really just starting to, starting to decipher, which is just so incredible. Now, will we ever be able to say, you know, go up to a sperm and say, "Hi, my name's Galen. What's your name?" or "What did you have for breakfast?" <laughs> I mean, I think that that would be incredible. I would love to know what they're thinking. But the reality is, I think that we're maybe um, not quite there. And I also don't know that we'll ever know really what you know, a sperm whale is thinking or how their mind is processing things in terms of emotion and things like that. I, I feel like that's a little too anthropomorphic for me, but <laughs> I certainly think that, you know, we can identify whales by their individual sounds. And I think that's pretty phenomenal. It, it certainly is. And I'm not sure that even though we're humans, we really understand a human brain and what we're thinking, even ourselves, much less anyone else that we're encountering. <laughs> so that mystery is always going to be there, interspecies or, or intrus, inter or intraspecies for sure. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things I was considering as I was going through your book is the, the fascination you have, and I think many of us have, with eyes. That is our, you know, view into the soul, yes. as it were, and and yet the slightly cynical side of me says, how much do they use their eyes? They hunt in deep, deep water. They use sound to echolocate and find things. So, what is the um, visual quality and range that you think for the sperm whales? They've got huge eyes. They should be able to see far, I guess. But Yeah, well, it's interesting with their eyes. And I think um, I start my book, you know, the my introduction starts by saying, I'll never forget the first time I saw a sperm whale, his enormous eye staring back at me. And I think, you know, we think about eyes as sort of like the gateway into someone's soul, into their personality. And it's very much the same with sperm whales. So going off on a little bit of a tangent, not really talking about how their eyes are working, but I do think that there is this power behind eyes, and that's why we're so fascinated by them. You can see, I mean, I can look in individual sperm whales' eyes and know which whale it is now that I've been in the water with them so many times. And I think that that's just phenomenal. I think that's sort of why there's a fascination with eyes, because they do, all of our eyes sort of works, especially mammalian eyes. You know, there's this power behind it and this, pen, like, they kind of penetrate your soul um, in a way, but they do have large eyes now, not necessarily large compared to their body size. So I do think that they see quite well, um, you know, cause actually if you, if you look at them, they kind of do have small eyes for how big their bodies are. Um, but one thing that's fascinating to me about sperm whales and their vision is that, you know, half the time I'm sort of alongside of them as I'm photographing them, they're only seeing me with one eye. They're not seeing in stereo. So they only really see in stereo when they're upside down or you're underneath them or they're sort of looking at you from underneath. So I think that that's fascinating. So they're really seeing me most likely in two dimensions other than their use of the sound and the sonar clicking on me as well. So how they use their eyes for hunting, probably at depth they're not, right? But on the surface, I certainly think that they're going to be relying on on sight for certain things and to get an, a feeling of what's going on around them. Now that I'm, I, I don't know that we know that for sure, but um, that's sort of my impression is that they're definitely looking at me and that's really what I can speak to more than anything. And then on the surface, they're really hanging out. They're not hunting. They're taking care of each other. They're keeping an eye on each other because they're in usually in family groups. Um, but at depth, they're certainly relying on sound and other 
other frequencies that perhaps we don't even know that they can that they can perceive. Yeah. And one of your photographs has a mother whale sleeping, which is an interesting phenomena, and there are two babies playing around her. And so yeah. a couple questions. I mean, obviously the the whole sleeping pattern is odd, but can um do they close their eyes when they sleep and can mothers have more than one baby so are those possibly two of her babies with her or somebody else's baby and she's sleeping on the job as a babysitter <laughs> yeah so sperm whales are incredible how they sleep they sleep vertically um and it's just phenomenal to see because they're vertical and it's both with their head up and their head down but they're vertical it must be however that they are buoyantly, neutrally buoyant so that it's the least amount of energy. They certainly close their eyes, which is absolutely insane to see. I actually had one whale swimming with me and sort of frolicking and pirouetting around me at one point, and then she went vertical and closed her eye right in front of me. It was like the ultimate, you know, trust in a way. And, you know, I was vertical next to her because I wasn't swimming and, you know, and she's vertical next to me, her eye closes and then her eye opens and it just looks at me again and then it closes again and just like make sure I was still there. Um, But the image that you're mentioning too, yeah. So one of the absolutely insanely amazing things about sperm whales is that they take care of each other's babies. So in these family units where you have grandmothers and mothers and aunts and cousins and siblings, because the females stay together their entire lives, the, um, the females will take care of each other's babies. So while that one, that one female, one of those babies may have been hers, or and then she's taking care of, say, her sister's baby or her cousin's baby. Um, so that's why there'd be two. Um, and usually when they go hunting, uh, that when they hunt at depth, the babies can't dive to the same depth. So one of the adults will stay behind to babysit. And so it could be an aunt babysitting two of her nieces or a niece and a nephew, or it could be um, the mom with her baby and then one of her nieces or nephews. So it's pretty phenomenal how they work together to really take care of each other's babies. They also will nurse each other's babies. So an aunt or a grandmother would nurse the, the newborn, not just the mother. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then both, both very, very um, heartwarming and also made me laugh at the same time. You mentioned in one of your captions that one of the mothers entrusted her baby to you. Yes. And that um, I was thinking, here's this, even a baby sperm whale is way bigger than you are whale, way, way bigger. So I was thinking, yeah, I entrusted you with her. What, what were you going to do if anything happened to this baby sperm whale? But yeah. um, th- that must have been a real um, heartwarming moment for you, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was one of those incredible moments where I think it's sort of a safety's in, a safety in numbers kind of thing for that baby whale. Um, there were a lot of uh, pilot whales in the area that day. And pilot whales are one of the only predators of sperm whales. They sort of, they hunt as sort of a pack pilot whales, like wolves in a way. Um, and so there were probably hundreds of pilot whales around and I had been in the water with them earlier. And then when we got in the water with this female, she had a baby with her. And as she sort of took off and I thought, okay, they're going to both go and, you know, be away. The baby turned to us as she dove into the depths. 
and came and frolicked with us for about 45 minutes until she heard her mom back at the surface that would be safe. So yes, the baby was probably about 14 feet long. So certainly larger than, than me, but I think that it was one of those uh, moments where it was safer for her to be, you know, next to the boat and next to us. And one thing that I find so incredibly fascinating about sperm whales and their interactions with us as humans is how, you know, it's only been a few generations or really one generation that um, since hunting, since whaling was banned, right? Whaling was banned in 1986. So the fact that they now can trust humans um, for things like babysitting or just letting us in the water with them, I think is pretty phenomenal how they learn and pass on knowledge um, in some way. But to be in the water with this baby and have it frolicking and playing with us like a puppy. And it really was like a puppy, like an aggressive puppy that you were like, <laughs> wait, you're really big. Fortunately, the babies don't have teeth. They hadn't erupted yet. So, um, but then again, we weren't anywhere, you know, I was swimming backwards from the baby as, you know, it was trying to, you know, kind of like rub up against me. We don't touch the animals. So I was swimming backwards. Um, that it was very cute as it was sort of frolicking around. And I felt very honored that, you know, the mom trusted us enough and that the baby was curious enough to stay with us and liked hanging out. So it's pretty special. Right. And and just to be clear, you had a, a permit or a license from the government of Dominica to be out in the water and so close to the sperm whales. I couldn't just go down there tomorrow and do what you did. No, no. We have a permit issued by the government for all of our expeditions. Okay. Yeah. And so in my list of amazing things about sperm whales, I had one, one was that their head alone could weigh up to 10 tons. <laughs> yes. I mean, and that was what they were hunted for, too. That was where all the, the oil was. Yes, the high value oil, the spermaceti was all in their head. And that was the smokeless oil, the best lubricant. Um, really, the the reason, like part of why, you know, the industrial revolution happened was because of sperm whales. We would light streets with sperm seti from a whale. Whales were really the first fuel to fuel modern technology. It's pretty phenomenal when you think about that. Um, so yeah, but the sperm seti, you know, would be, you know, gallons and gallons, thousands of gallons in their head, and they would go and scoop it out and, you know, process it and and of course, that's used for communication and all sorts of interesting things for the whale, but it certainly had the, a very high value for human consumption back in the you know early late 1800s and early 1900s. And that also led to there being legends in literature or in historic events. I mean, the Essex was mm -hmm. hit by a sperm whale. Moby Dick, I guess, was a sperm whale. So absolutely, that that gives them the the. Um, that Leviathan that yeah. Carl Safina uses, that idea mm -hmm. that they're out there to get us. Right. And if you think about it, um, yeah, no, absolutely. They were hunted and they were highly valued and people will go after them, you know, with harpoons. And it, you know, they obviously, they mostly wanted the large males that could have been at that point 80 feet long. You know, some of the whaling data shows whales that were that large. Um, and then they would also go after the females because they knew that they were in these groups with babies. Um, and so really, when you think about them in terms of attacking ships and they are smart and they're protecting their families. And that was really, you know, what would you do if you had a harpoon thrown in you? You know, I mean, I think you would probably try to fight back. And I think that's 
you know, really why they have all of these tails, because they were trying to not only protect themselves once they were harmed, but to protect their family that they lived with, you know, and to make sure that nobody else in their group was killed or harmed. Um, there's an incredible paper that came out just two years ago about how these whales actually learned how to evade the whaling ships when they were under sail. And they would stay, you know, upwind of the sailboats and of the hunters and make it much more difficult for them to come and find them and get to them and get within range of the harpoons um, after some time. But yeah, certainly whales were violent when they were, you know, having a harpoon thrown at them, which I think is justifiable and also interesting um, that that's, of course, how they were portrayed, sort of as the enemy. Um, but now when we're in the water with them, they are so gentle and I've never felt any inkling of hostility or wanting to harm me. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm always greeted with curiosity. That's so sweet. And one of the things that your book didn't go into very much that I am wondering about, and maybe sort of that science that you've got behind the, the photographs, Feisty came onto shore or tried to beach and then was, was kept in the basin for, for days until you figured out that he had pneumonia. And that seems like a disease we're, we have as, as humans. And what's, I mean, is pneumonia or that, those types of diseases common in whales? What are, what are the, I mean, pilot whales are one of the things that come and try to kill them and humans, but what are some of the things that are also uh, imperiling sperm whales? Yeah. So certainly I think with all ocean animals, they can get diseases. Um, whether they're the exact same strain as humans or slightly different, I don't know. Um, but I think it is very interesting that Feisty had pneumonia and it was certainly a problem with his breathing um, that then led him away from his family and caused him to strand. Um, and it was phenomenal that they figured that out with all, with all the veterinarians who were around. Um, so certainly there's disease that threatens many ocean animals and many of those diseases we don't know. There are different, you know, there was a parasitic infection in sharks a few years ago here in New York that was killing many sharks. But right now, the biggest threats to sperm whales, and I think really the biggest threat throughout time, has been humans. Um, and, you know, certainly in the whaling days, it was whaling and intentionally killing them. And now what we're seeing is when we see whales that strand, um, it's consumption of plastics. Ghost fishing gear, there was just a whale that washed ashore in Cape Breton in Nova Scotia. And in his stomach was just pounds and pounds of ghost fishing gear um, that had forced, basically filled up his stomach so that he could no longer eat and he starved to death. Um, entanglement is another problem that happens with sperm whales um, because they get, they're unable to swim as quickly and they can't dive to depth to hunt when they're entangled in fishing gear. Um, so those are two of the main problems. And then ship strikes are the other problem, uh, the other main problem that faces them because they sleep so quietly and completely vertically right at the surface. So they are often hit by fast ferries and, you know, other shipping, shipping um, vessels. So those are really the main things that are, are threatening the sperm whales today. 
And then it, it seemed you were saying in the book that some people will throw out derelict fishing gear and such because it, it becomes becomes a fish attractor, which then becomes a whale attractor. Well, it doesn't really become a whale attractor so much. Yeah. So what they do in many parts of the world is they use fish aggregating devices, which are, you know, sort of derelict fishing gear or bottles or whatever it is to create some sort of structure in what seems like an endless vast ocean. And then smaller fish will gather around this structure to use it as, you know, protection. And then from there kind of goes up the food chain to the point where there's big tunas and marlins sort of circling this structure. They use this technology all over the world. Um, I say technology, it can be as simple as you'll see in the, as you saw in the book, where it's just some bottles strung together and some old fishing nets to, you know, really extend, and that's what's used in Dominica, but, and then there's some really extensive, crazy structures that they put in and, they're often used to catch tunas. They will purse in around tunas into other parts of the world. Um, but what happens is the whales don't necessarily perceive this line. And so they'll swim into it really more as a, not so much that they're attracted to those aggregating devices, more that they just actually come in contact with it and then get entangled. So, and then if they're wrapped up in that line, it's very difficult to get out. And so they're sort of dragging it around with them. And so there was one young whale recently, um, her name was Digit, and she got entangled in a fish aggregating device. And she somehow, so she was basically dragging around, you know, a whole bunch of fishing line and things. And it created this huge scar around her tail. And it was a bunch of years and she couldn't hunt and she was young. So I think somehow she was still probably nursing. So she was surviving, um, but they were really worried about her future. And then eventually, either by the rest of her family sort of picking at it and getting it off, um, it it's no longer on her and she's alive and well, um, but with a massive scar on her tail. But she seems to be doing fine now, which is great. Gee. And it, it just was your, while you were talking, it occurred to me that Probably that sonar for major navigation that the whales use isn't going to pick up anything like fishing gear. Yeah, especially something that's so small. And they're also not necessarily, you know, and, and this is completely um, me just thinking about it. But um, I think that, you know, they're not really thinking about hazards as they're at the surface in their, really, it's their rest time, right? They're down at depth hunting. And it's, you know, very active for them, but this is their, you know, 45 minutes on the surface to rest in between their hunting expeditions. So they're not necessarily pinging and looking for these hazards. Listeners who are following along with your book, the photograph that spans pages 98 and 99 is of, of a whale that's diving. Mm -hmm. And of all the photographs in the book, and they're almost all amazing. I don't why well, I say almost. They are all amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that one to me is so great because it almost looks like the way someone on the surface would be swimming along and want to dive down and you bend at the waist and you start going down. And it has mm -hmm. that bend in it that looks just, in certain ways of looking at it, it looks like a human diving down as well. It's just such a cool photograph. I really appreciated it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just I just opened my book that I have here next to it. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty it's um it's pretty amazing to watch them and to 
it's hard, as you just mentioned with this image. And I have to say, I never thought about that with this image, but it's hard when you're in the water with these whales and you're observing them not to see so many human characteristics in them. Um, and you know, they're mammals, but it's so true. And, and then of course, as you said, like as we dive down, then our feet or our fins come up and that's exactly what happens. And you see their fluke and then they disappear into the depth. If only we could all dive as well as sperm whales, um, (laughs) and explore those depths. I think that that would be my, my biggest dream, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah. All of these photographs are yours, or was your mother out there with her camera as well and taking a lot of the Well, one of them's of you, so somebody had to take the picture. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So all of the photographs um, are mine, except for the ones that are of me and those my mother took, which has been incredibly special to, um, to have her along with me. It's funny because I was doing a uh, in-conversation a few weeks ago with somebody and um, we were sort of bouncing back and forth. She was talking a lot about climate and um, we were talking about, you know, mothers and daughters. And she was like, it's kind of like you take your, it's like, instead of take your daughter to work day, it was like, take your mom to work day. Um, And I think that was really funny because it's so true. What's been really fun about this expedition and this project is that, you know, my mom introduced me to the ocean when I was a kid and certainly fostered my curiosity and my desire to study the ocean And then, you know, I've been able to bring her on this expedition to give her a glimpse into what sort of expedition science and making, you know, fun, beautiful media about the ocean is um, and what it takes and teaching her how to photograph underwater um, and putting it, throwing a camera in her hands and saying, mom, you better do a good job (laughs) and putting a lot of pressure on her, you know, but at the same time, she really did an incredible job. So she, um, she's been filming for me on this project and very willingly. Um, but, and then, yeah, so she took all of the photographs that are of me in the book. So it's pretty, pretty special to have that added element. And, and filming for the most part a matriarchal portion of the whale society. So mm-hmm. mother-daughter teams both both ways. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's there's been a couple of just incredible moments where we've been in the water with like three generations of whales. So a grandmother, a mother, and then a baby. And I'm there with my mom, right? And it's just like you're watching this interaction and you're watching the baby learn from the two generations. And then, you know. And then at the same time, I'm like looking out for my mom. They're looking out for each other. And then we're all sort of like in the in this like crazy vortex of just, you know, taking like women taking care of other women and just these incredible bonds. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned in your book that you hope it will do is to help people recognize how wonderful sperm whales are and, and act to help save them. Mm-hmm. Um, you've sort of identified the threats, but let's identify some of the things you think of as positive measures we can take to help and increase the sperm whale population. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, most of us don't live in a place where sperm whales are, right? Most sperm whales are offshore. So, you know, while we can't do anything necessarily directly, um, other than knowing that they're there and how important they are, which I think is certainly one of the goals of the book is to sort of give that intimate glimpse of these incredible animals. And I think that can translate to everything in the ocean to just see how incredible um, and important and how similar and just all of these, you know, 
to connect to the ocean um, and view it sort of as our, our neighbor and not so much as something that is so detached from us. Um, but I do think, you know, certain there's certainly there are certain simple things we can do, like decreasing our use of single use plastics, um, you know, because plastic is a huge issue in the ocean and sperm whales are eating plastic. We were in the water a couple of times where there were floating plastic bags and I actually saw a sperm whale, you know, sort of go after a plastic bag. So something so simple that really is not a difficult thing to remove from your life um, can really have an impact if we all do it, right? And I think we're, we're seeing that more and more. Um, so I'd say eliminating single-use plastics is a huge thing, being aware of, you know, fish that you eat, if you consume fish, to know um, how it's caught and where it's caught and what kind of methods you're using. So there, we minimize the impact in terms of, you know, these um, fish aggregating devices and all these other things that can have impacts on whales um, and other mammals as well. Um, so really just, you know, being aware and making choices that think about the ocean, you know, sort of as our neighbor and not as something that we don't care about. And it's just like this endless waste zone, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And yet when you say they're not really near us, they're offshore, but they've got this huge range, as you mentioned, they go from about 40 degrees south to 40, or 60 degrees south, 60 mm -hmm. degrees north. So Absolutely. Almost all of us on the shore have whales offshore of us. Just yeah. They're not right there. Yeah. And so everything we do along the shoreline is that goes out into the water is going to eventually yeah, be there yeah. with them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everything that we do, you know, affects the ocean. I think that's something that's very important to think about with really all of our actions, no matter what it is. Everything, all points, you know, sort of lead to the ocean, whether you're in the mountains of Colorado or you're, you know, right on the coast. Um, so it is really, we all can have an impact. Great. What, um, your book just came out last week. So yes. I think you're in the whole book, right? Book reviews, um, book signings. It, it's all about sperm whales, the general goliath of the ocean right now for you, but you've, I know you well enough to know you've got something else in the, in the wings. Yes. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So what's interesting about this entire project is, as we mentioned at the beginning, it started as a film project and making a film called Finding Feisty. Um, and then you know, there's been a couple of like little turns and then the book came about. And so I'm finishing the film. So right now we are in post-production of the film. Um, and hopefully that will be coming out in the late spring or early summer of 2023, which will be really exciting because you sort of the book takes you on a journey of, you know, seeing these incredible whales underwater and glimpses of this incredible behavior um, and then the film will sort of dive more into the story of Feisty and my personal connection um, to it. So what's fun is we have these really strong, beautiful visuals in the book. And then we'll have the sort of companion film that will, you know, sort of dive a little bit deeper into the into the story. So that's really that's what's next. And then, of course, sharing sharing the sperm whale story as, in as many places as possible. Um until until I dive into the next project. Great. Now, 
You've been on Shorewards before. I asked you about your favorite beach. You did any beach that you're on as your favorite beach, <laughs> which is so true for so many people. <laughs> but um, the other question then is, what are you reading now? Because this is also a book about literature. I mean, a podcast about literature. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to be honest. Right now, I have been so overwhelmed with writing um, that I haven't been reading nearly as much as I would love to be writing. But I am... I mean, reading, sorry, I'm writing all the time. Um, but I've been um, reading a book about the first steam engine, um, first fireboat. Sorry, I'm going to totally botch this. I'm totally, um, I'm reading, hold on. I can't even remember what it's called right now. Threw me off with this one, Leslie. <laughs> um, that happens, especially if it's not, a, it's not a physical book and you can't look at the cover every day. Yeah, so I'm currently reading a book called My River Chronicles by Jessica Dulong. Oh. And it's a really fantastic book. And it's about um, a, um, she was the chief engineer of the first New York City fireboat um, that was retired in 1931. And it's about her journey to, um, to connect with the Hudson River. So it's sort of a history of the Hudson River along with her journey and her you know, complete sort of career shift to spend time on this incredible river that's right outside my back door. Wow. Sounds great. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's really great. And I'm actually, coincidentally, I'm doing an in-conversation with her in a couple of weeks um, here, and she's just phenomenal. So she's written a lot of other books as well, but that's that's what's currently on my bedside table. Huh. Maybe I can get her on to Shorewards soon. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Um, any parting words, closing words, anything else you want to? Oh, how about your website? How can people get your book? Yeah, absolutely. So my book is available online on any fine bookseller or hopefully at many independent booksellers as well. Um, I will be doing book signings um, most likely around the country in the coming months as well. So keep an eye out. My website is galenrosenwax.com. And often the best place to find out sort of my latest news is on social media. And the it's galen at galen go explore. So that's usually the best um, for for finding out the newest information. But any fine bookseller, Amazon, um, Barnes and Nobles, or hopefully many, many independent bookstores, because I do love to support our local bookstores. Great. Thank you, everyone, for listening today to Galen Rosenwax about her book, Sperm Whales, the Goliaths of the Oceans. Galen is an explorer, a fisheries researcher, a whale aficionado, and a uh, phenomenal storyteller, photographer, writer, and filmmaker. So she's, she's covered many media. She's a wonderful friend and a wonderful conserver and steward of our ocean. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast today and that it encourages to look at your different beaches in a wonderful way, look differently at the ocean. And till next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Goodbye. <laughs>